Good day to you. It is a Monday. I'm here to cure your Monday blues. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good Monday, if there is such a thing. We got a little schedule mix-up, so we're here today instead of tomorrow. That's okay. I think if you're missing it today, you can always tune in tomorrow and pretend it's live. It's just as good. Uh, Another little schedule note. In two weeks... I'm taking a little vacation, just one week off, but then we'll get right back at it the following week. So just want you to know that as well. NFL, obviously, in the forefront. The Olympics going away. MLB, we got some things to talk about there. And I've actually found something that the Pagoulas have done right. So I want to give credit where credit is due because I don't want to be considered a hater. You know how the kids say, hater. Anyway, I want to start with the NFL, and I want to start with Josh Allen. Josh Allen got paid. My man is loaded. His family, a farm family from Fireball, California, no longer has to worry about the crops. They no longer have to worry about droughts and things like that because my man Josh is going to average $43 million a year over the length of his contract. It's a six-year deal, $258 million. It's interesting because philosophically, Josh Allen's entering his fourth year in the league. Year one, the national media and, and the pundits, if you will, were convinced that Josh wasn't a quarterback that was going to be in the league. Even some of the local media didn't feel this guy had any chance of being an NFL quarterback. Year two, Showed some things, and, you know, you could maybe make a case that there was progress. Year three last year, we all know what happened. Josh just blew up and and had a great, great season. He had one of the best offensive seasons, if not the best offensive season, for a quarterback in Bill's history. Threw for over 4,500 yards, completed almost 70% of his passes, things Honestly, I never thought would happen. You see Stefan Diggs there. Diggs was a huge part of it. But the evolution of Josh Allen continues. And as the Bills are going through training camp, if you follow the Bills media every day, Josh Allen has been fantastic through camp this year. He's become the face of the franchise. He's become the leader of the franchise. And now he's being paid like it. It's ironic that last week when I sat here talking to y'all, I, I, I talked about the Pagoulas asking for $1.1 billion to build a new football stadium. Well, it's ironic that they can pay Josh Allen a quarter of a billion dollars to play football, but they can't build a stadium for $1.1 billion. But I don't want to get into that. It is further case that the billionaires who own the team – should certainly be able to build their own stadium. But I want to break down this contract. Good move, bad move. We'll let you decide ultimately. The extension includes $150 million guaranteed, and that's the real part of NFL contracts. There's always a lot of numbers when you when you evaluate an NFL contract, but the guaranteed portion of the contract will ultimately affect the salary cap. And how that's broken down and how the cap can be managed in large part is going to determine the players around Josh Allen. Here's the other thing. This contract 
with two years left on his rookie deal this year and next year's fifth-year extension, which the Bills have already picked up. Essentially, Allen is now going to be with the Bills, well, seemingly, for eight more years through the 29th season. That's when he's signed through. I think there will be something done in the year 2025, whether it's an extension or maybe after that year, if things don't work out, that would be the last year of Josh Allen. But nobody's thinking that way. Everyone's thinking this is a quarterback and a team on the rise. They're now paying him for the long term. And it's going to be something that every year now, Brandon Bean, when he sets the budget for his team, he doesn't have to worry about the biggest piece of the puzzle. Biggest piece of the puzzle in any winning football team is going to be the quarterback and keeping the quarterback paid. Now, with the new salary cap coming in next year, this year the salary cap was lowered, so his cap hit this year is actually quite low. It's only ten million two hundred and ten thousand percentage wise. That's around five percent of the salary cap, so it's not an exorbitant fee. And remember, because of the pandemic. The salary capital is actually lowered this year. It'll go up next year and continue to escalate as the new television contract comes into play. So the timing of this works out well. Again, all of this is assuming Josh Allen continues to do what he did last year and show he's a top-five quarterback in the league. He's now paid like a top-five quarterback. He must perform like a top-five quarterback. One of the things that Allen said in reaction to his contract, and I thought it was an astute comment by a young man, he hasn't, he wasn't paid for what he has done. He's paid for what he will continue to do, and he needs to continue to perform. And I I think that's great because a lot of times guys are paid for what they've done in the past. And unfortunately, I'll use Albert Pujols of the Angels. Poole signed a deal based on what he did for the Cardinals. And he was worth every penny that the Cardinals paid him. Fortunately, after a couple years in Anaheim, the age started creeping in, and that contract became very burdensome. That's the fine line of signing long-term deals. You're much better signing a guy early in his career to a long-term deal than you are in the middle of his career, because in the middle of his career, you're going to get those later years where you very well may not be the same player. It's interesting looking at the salary cap breakdown year by year. I mentioned the year 2025, and that year, Josh Allen's cap hit will be $51,280,000. Now, should the Bills decide to move on for him from him, before that year, the dead cap money would be $20,260,000. So Josh Allen will be with the Bills at least through the 25 season. And likely that year is the year that things get redone if Allen continues to produce and Allen continues to be the quarterback that we hope he's going to be. That's the year of a restructure as I see it. Because the following year in 2026, although the cap hit is $46,980,000, the dead cap money is only $8,480,000. So it would be easy to move on from Josh Allen after the 25 season if, and again, God forbid, if he doesn't continue to play 
at his top level. I mentioned the average salary, $43 million. He gets a $16.5 million signing bonus. There are several roster bonuses along the way that help make up this money. It is a manageable contract. It doesn't make it so that you can't pay the other players. And if you look at this team, other than Stefan Diggs, there aren't a lot of stars. Tredavious White is locked up. You look around the other players, there's a lot of good players, not a lot of great players. So it's not like there's a ton of guys who are going to get big money. And the next question for Brandon Bean, and this is going to be a tough one, is going to be Tremaine Edmonds. The Bills did pick up his fifth-year option. His fifth-year option next year is going to be $12.7 million. After that, to keep Tremaine Edmonds, and I think Edmonds needs to prove a lot, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, he's going to be in an area where Darius Leonard of the Indianapolis Colts just signed a five-year, $99.25 million deal, basically $20 million a year. Is Tremaine Edmonds a $20 million a year linebacker? Right now, he is not. So the decision by Brandon Bean and the Bills going forward is going to be, what do you do with Tremaine Edmonds? He's the next domino to fall. I think at some point, there's an extension that comes in for Diggs, but the real question is the guy we're showing right now on the screen, Tremaine Edmonds. Is he going to be a Bill long-term, or is he going to be a five-year player, draft another middle linebacker to develop, and, and go the cheaper route, if you will? The other question, and it's a year down the road, is Ed Oliver. Ed Oliver's the other first-round first pick who, in my opinion, hasn't yet achieved uh, guaranteed, yes, we're going to pick up his fifth-year contract, yes, we're going to keep him long-term status. He's been okay at best in his first two years. And Oliver, in my opinion, is a key to this year. And I'm gonna, again, I'm going to get to that. But those are the guys lined up next to re-sign for big money for the Bills, in my opinion. You got to lock up. Stefan Diggs, that's a no-brainer. That deal will get done. Not that he's a free agent, but I think you're going to see a restructuring and an extension, and I think that's one that has to happen. Then the next two dominoes are the two guys we just showed on the screen, Ad Oliver and Tremaine Edmonds. So the contract, Brandon Bean doing, I think, a very good job of managing the cap, keeping the team together, keeping Sean McDermott's rotation on the defensive line in place. We added two players to that this year with Rousseau and Basham. So I think there's a lot of good things off the field happening in Buffalo. Let's hope, again, it translates on the field. How do you translate on the field this year? Well, coming off the year that the Bills came off of last year, looking at how they duplicate the success that they had, or maybe better, how to take it a step further. I mean, let's face it. The Bills were in the AFC Championship game. To take that next step, what needs to happen to take that next step? And I've broken down some keys as we, you know, Friday is the first Bills preseason game. Friday the 13th. Oh, by the way, the fact it's Friday the 13th, 
Don't let Josh Allen even put shoulder pads on for the game. Keep him in the booth. Let him watch from above. Keep him off the sideline. Put bubble wrap. Don't let Diggs near the field. Keep these guys off the field. Let them play a half in game two, and that's it. I don't want to see these guys on the field at all. But this gets started Friday night, so we're not that far off from looking at what the Bills really need to do to have a successful 2021 season. To do that, biggest keys on offense is Josh being Josh. And and Josh being Josh used to mean bad things. Now, Josh being Josh means what we saw last year. A confident, competent young quarterback with great physical gifts who can lead that offense and carry a football team. He needs to do that on occasion. I don't want to see him do it all the time. I thought last year sometimes that Brian Dable put him in position to ask maybe a little too much. I want to see more from the running game, but we definitely would need to see Josh Allen have similar numbers. 4,500 yards, 30 touchdown passes, 65% completion percentage, 100 quarterback rating, keep the turnovers down, and I still want 300 rushing yards and six touchdowns. And frankly, I don't think that's a too big of an ask based on the team and based on the player that Josh Allen is. The offensive line, I think, is a very big key to this year. Last year, the offensive line suffered with injuries. Cody Ford didn't have a good year. There was a lot of movement in the interior of the offensive line at guard. Daryl Williams and and Deion Dawkins were actually very good as the tackles. How they go forward from here will be interesting. But I think there's another ask of that offensive line, and it's the ask to get 1,000 yards running between the combination of Devin Singletary and Zach Moss. They have to be able to support what has become a very good passing game. Somehow, some way, continue to run the football. If either Moss or Singletary stands out, feed them. If it's running back by committee, go with the hot hand. Whatever the case may be, the best thing that this offense can evolve into is a balanced offense, which it was not for last year. Defensively, the two players I talked about getting paid, those are the keys, in my opinion, to the defense going forward this year. Remember, Star Latulale is back. And while Bills fans have had a love-hate relationship, they love to hate him, uh, Star Latulale is a key player this year because he is something that the Bills don't have another one of. The Bills have a lot of depth throughout their roster. But one thing they lack in is a big physical, take-up blockers guy like Star Latulale. Latulale is a guy who is absolutely capable of tying up blockers and allowing others to make plays. So if Latulale and Ed Oliver are your starting defensive tackles, Oliver could benefit greatly from Star's ability to tie guys up. He can then just use his speed and quickness to get penetration, disruption, and possibly make more plays. The other thing is, if the defensive tackles occupy the offensive linemen, that means the linebackers don't have offensive linemen at their feet. They're allowed to run sideline to sideline. This is where Tremaine Edmonds 
needs to star. Remember, Matt Milano is back. He's signed for big money. He is a guy who has made big plays throughout the the games that he's played. Went on the field, interceptions, fumble recoveries, pass breakups. He has been an impact player. Tremaine Edmonds has been a good, solid middle linebacker. What he hasn't done is the impact plays that Matt Milano has made. If Starla Tule is back, it should keep people off Edmonds' feet. He's now in his fourth year. There's no reason to play hesitantly as he has in the past. This is a year that I want to see Tremaine Edmonds take a huge step forward and become a Pro Bowl middle linebacker and be a guy like Darius Leonard of the Colts where when he does sign or if he does sign that big contract, everyone goes, yeah, that's a good move. That guy's a good football player. Because right now, I don't think Brandon Bean can justify paying that sort of contract out to Tremaine Edmonds. I, I simply don't think he's head and shoulders above average. I think he's a very average middle linebacker. It's not a bad thing. It's just not a really good thing. If you're going to pay somebody a lot of money, they got to be really good. Right now, through his first three years, there's been a lot more okay than really good from Tremaine Edmonds. Needs to change in a big way. So those guys are on certainly the spotlight. The other thing is, where do the Bills get a pass rush from? Jerry Hughes is still getting constant pressure even in his later years in the league. I think that you can look at the Bills' defensive line and say that there's going to be some pressure there. But I think it's incumbent on three young players to stand out and find somebody to take. Again, I'm talking a lot about taking steps forward, but guys were drafted to be players that they're not yet. So when you're drafted to be a player, eventually you got to become that player. And at this point, last year, A.J. Appenenza showed signs as a rookie. You're going to see similar signs from Gregory Rousseau and Boogie Basham. But to me, one of those three guys needs to become a consistent pass rush threat. If they're brought in in pass rush situations, use their speed, quickness, and show that you're becoming that player. Early in camp, there have been signs that Epinenza may be that guy. And again, it looks like Jerry Hughes in the last year of his deal this may be his last year in Buffalo, so one of these three is going to slide into that role going forward. I think they, I think the Bills need to see constant improvement. So if you are watching Friday night's game, first off, let me give you, this is some fatherly advice from an old guy. The dumbest thing in sports is people betting on wins and losses in preseason football. If you're doing that, you're either Evander Kane, and I'm going to get to him, or you've got a problem called Gamblers Anonymous. You want to bet the over-under? That's fine. You want a little something to, to get you through to the game? Bet the over-under. When the team's playing, don't give a rat's ass if they win or lose. Why should you? Think about that. The teams don't care if they win or lose. doesn't matter. Yet you're betting on them to win or lose. 
doesn't really seem like a good idea. So if you're watching the game, bet the over, bet the under, that's fine. But keep an eye on certain things. All you want to see is no injuries. You want to see the young players. You want to see is Dane Jackson taking that next step. Now, reportedly he's had good practices and bad, but it looks like, in my opinion anyway, from what I've read, that Levi Wallace will be the starting corner opposite Trey White. But the biggest thing, in my opinion, is watch Russo and Boogie Basham and A.J. Appenenza. Because if these guys are ready to take that next step, they might get an opportunity to play against some guys who might not be there opening day. And if they do, they should take advantage and make an impact. On Saturday morning, we should be talking about the young defensive ends of the Buffalo Bills having an impact on the game. If not, I'm going to be a little worried. So in my opinion, that's the biggest thing other than injury-free the Bills can ask for on Friday night. So the NFL, as they get closer to the regular season and preseason games, things take on a little bit more meaning. And one thing that's going on, and I've alluded to this a little bit in the past, but the more I read and the more I hear out of the New York Jets training camp, I'm not ready to say it's becoming a concern, but Zach Wilson looks like a guy who's not ready for the big lights yet. In Friday night's scrimmage, the green-white scrimmage, it was the first game at MetLife Stadium in a couple years because of the pandemic where fans were allowed in. Close to 20,000 fans came in, and Zach Wilson had a rough night through a couple interceptions, wasn't able to get the first-team offense into the end zone. The thing is, the Jets' defense isn't exactly one of those defenses that you look at and you say, that's one of the better defenses in the league. They got some nice players, but they got some injuries. But Zach Wilson has struggled big time, and there's a lot of mumbling. I'll say it that way, not talk, mumbling, that this may be a very bad situation. The same mumbling is going on in Carolina where apparently Sam Darnold has had a great camp in Carolina. And, you know, certain franchises seem to struggle getting things right, and the Jets seem to have had an unbelievably bad time of finding their next quarterback. It would be so New York Jet-like. If Zach Wilson struggles badly and all of a sudden Sam Darnold shows the promise that so many felt he had coming out of USC, it's just something to keep an eye on going forward. And again, it's very early. But when you're the second overall pick and you're throwing more picks than touchdowns almost routinely, daily at camp, it's something that the media is going to talk about. And it's something going forward that is going to catch a lot of eyeballs. So keep an eye on Zach Wilson of the Jets because certainly he's the key to this team finding its way yet again. Stay in in New York or New Jersey. I actually don't like the fact that both teams train and play in New Jersey, but whatever. The New Jersey Giants, if you will, had a big fight last week. And it was one that the entire team basically took part in is training camp fights are one of those things. It's going to happen. 
you're going up against a guy every day. You're punching each other. You're hitting each other. You're swearing at each other every single day in hot, hot weather. And it gets a little old. It's not surprising that there are training camp fights, but this one was a doozy. It involved the whole team. Daniel Jones apparently was on the bottom of the pile. And that's not a good thing for the quarterback. There's a reason they wear the red jerseys, to keep them healthy. But Joe Judge did something that makes me wonder. Joe Judge last year, I thought, did a great job with the Giants turning things around, creating a situation after Ben McAdoo's disaster that I thought he had a very good handle on his team. Then I read this, and I was like, oh, boy, I'm starting to wonder about Joe Judge. After the fight, he put the entire team on the goal line, and they ran 100-yard gassers. He then had them run, had them do push-ups. I remember high school football many, many years ago. We ran gassers at the end of every practice. We did push-ups when we did something wrong. Yeah, it was all part of the deal in high school football. How do millionaire athletes take to this? I'm not sure. This isn't something that I think many guys in that locker room are going to look at and go, hmm, yeah, that was a good idea. Reminded me of a few years ago when Rex Ryan was the Bills coach, and they were very penalized. And if you remember during camp, if you had a penalty, you had to run a lap. And I say run, I'm being kind, because I was out at those camps and I saw guys run a lap. It was like, well, the the walking in the Olympics, the speed walking, much faster than the running of the laps at an NFL football camp. And a lot of the players at the time talk, talked about a high school coach move and how it didn't go over in the locker room. That's why I was a little concerned when Joe Judge did that. The Giants, though, big week. Looks like Saquon Barkley is going to be activated off the physically unable to perform list, meaning if all stays the same way, he should be good to go opening day for the Giants. And I think that's a huge, huge thing. Saquon is, in my opinion, one of the best running backs in the league. Reminds me of Barry Sanders a lot. Can go the distance on any play. Might lose yardage three plays in a row. And then that fourth play, it's a 90-yard touchdown run. He has that type of explosiveness. Question now is coming off of an ACL injury, does he still have that explosiveness? We'll see as this year plays out. But interesting week for the Giants. A lot of talk out of New England. Cam Newton versus Mac Jones. And there's more rumblings that number 50 is going to get the starting nod week went week one. Number 50, of course, is Cam is Mac Jones number right now when he practices. I don't know what the deal is with that, and frankly, I don't care. All I know is, from all reports, he has been by far the better quarterback so far in camp. The question I have is, is Bill Belichick, who seemed last year to find a comfort zone with Cam Newton, who's basically a shell of his former quarterback self at this point, is he going to be comfortable turning his offense over to a guy that played essentially one year of college football at an extremely high level at Alabama 
Is he going to be comfortable doing that? Remember, when Brady was a rookie, he did not start. Bledsoe did. Then the injury, Mo Lewis hit Bledsoe. Bledsoe was out. He was forced to go with Brady. And there was a lot of talk. Maybe it's hindsight, but there was a lot of talk that Brady was a better quarterback throughout camp and practice of that year with the Patriots, but that Belichick stayed with the veterans. So something to keep an eye on there. We did see football this past weekend. Steelers and Cowboys played Friday night in the Hall of Fame game. Najee Harris, the running back for the Steelers, has turned a lot of heads in camp. His ability to be a pass catcher out of the backfield and even lining up at wide receiver. Steelers absolutely love this guy. And look at this Steeler team, and I think defensively they should be very good. They've got two of the better players in all of football on that defense, and T.J. Watt and Minka Fitzpatrick, both just great, great individual talent. So I think the defense is going to be very good yet again. If Ben Roethlisberger is healthy, the wide receivers are in place. The question is the offensive line. Can that rebuilt offensive line do enough to get Najee, Najee Harris some room to run and keep Ben Roethlisberger upright? Interesting thing with the Dolphins. Xavier Howard is one of the better cornerbacks in the league, and he and Byron Jones might be the best cornerback tandem in the league. And that allows Brian Flores to do some creative things defensively, knowing he's got two studs on the outside that can lock up man. Well, Najee Harris, I'm sorry, Xavier Howard was upset with the contract he signed about an hour ago. I mean, this guy just re-signed a deal with the Dolphins and was upset. Well, the Dolphins restructured it, and he is now in camp and apparently happy for the time being. That'll get him through this year, and then I'm guessing after the year, there's going to be another breakup or another argument between Howard's people and and the Dolphins, and he likely will play elsewhere. And the Colts, I mentioned, they signed Darius Leonard, which was an easy no-brainer move to that contract extension. I keep saying this about the Colts. They're everything but a quarterback at this point. The offensive line is excellent. Obviously, there's some concern up front with some injuries. We'll see if they're all intact come opening day. I think they will be. But this is a team that has depth and talent everywhere except at the quarterback position. And they've got talent if Carson Wentz is ready to go. He had the foot surgery. We'll see where he is. Opening day, I don't expect him opening day, how long he's out, and what do the Colts do in the interim? Do they continue on their way and let Jacob Eason be their guy? Last year's fourth-round pick out of Washington, big arm, young kid, going to make mistakes, can hand off to Jonathan Taylor behind that very good offensive line. I, I just wonder if they go make a play for a veteran in case Wentz, the timetable, was 5 to 12 weeks. 5 weeks, I think, is optimistic. 12 weeks, maybe pessimistic. But if it's 8 or 9 weeks, can they withstand that much of the schedule if they want to make things happen this year? And again, it's Carson Wentz coming off of a couple rough seasons in Philadelphia, so something to keep an eye on there. 
the NFL had their Hall of Fame weekend this weekend. And I, I really enjoyed listening to some of the, the speeches. I, I got to admit, some of them I, I tuned out quickly. I thought there were some really poignant moments. Love seeing Peyton Manning was introduced by his father, Archie. Seeing his family in the crowd, and obviously Eli, the joke he made about Tom Brady, that Brady will be the first ballot Hall of Famer in his first year of eligibility in 2035. Thought that was excellent. I thought Manning made a case for him possibly being involved in the league at some point, trying to talk about growing the game of football, the importance of the game of football, and how much he loves the game of football, thanking coaches, players. Thought it was fantastic. Peyton Manning, I don't know where he ends up, what he ends up doing, but whatever he does, I believe he'll be extremely successful at it. It was really cool to see him get in. One of my favorite moments was Jimmy Johnson. And I thought his speech was great. He acknowledged that he didn't have a relationship with his sons, that he never had seen his sons play a game of high school football, and how horrific that is to look back on, and how fortunate he is that they have since rekindled their relationship and now have a great relationship and are trying to make up for lost time. I thought that was very poignant. The other thing... I liked what he said. If you treat a man as he is, he will continue to be as he is. If you treat a man as he could be, he will become what he could be. And I thought that was a great motivational line that should be in locker rooms across this country because it's very true. We often accept people for what they are instead of pushing them to be what they could be. And I I think that was a great moment. The other part of the Jimmy Johnson story is what seems to be somewhat of a reconciliation between he and Jerry Jones. Remember, they won a couple championships together. There was a discussion with the media by Jerry Jones saying that 500 coaches could coach the team he built to a championship. He proved it by hiring Barry Switzer after Jimmy quit. Two of them hadn't spoken for years. Now it appears that Jimmy is going to be in the ring of honor in the stadium in Dallas and that they have rekindled or at least patched over some of the differences that had gone on so so long. Maybe the line of the weekend was by Edron James, who said he came into the league with gold teeth and he leaves the league with a gold jacket. Just a great back. And you think about, you know, there's always the talk of going from quarterback to quarterback. The Colts went from Peyton Manning to Andrew Luck. The Packers from Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers. How great that is. Not only did the did the Colts go from Peyton Manning to Andrew Luck, but think of Marvin Harrison to Reggie Wayne. That Hall of Famer to probable Hall of Famer. From Marshall Falk to Edger and James, Hall of Famer to Hall of Famer at the running back position. And obviously Bill Polian, the architect of those teams and the selector of those talents, he's a Hall of Famer as well. And it's pretty easy to figure out why. 
I guess as I look at that and, you know, Tony Dungy being a Hall of Fame coach now, I, I got to ask one question. Why only one championship? It seems like there should have been more. And I guess the obvious answer is Belichick and Brady. But you look at the talent and Dwight Freeney on the other side of the ball is going to get a gold jacket one of these years soon too. It just seems like there maybe should have been more. Bill Cower getting his moment in Canton. A lot of Steeler love in Canton this weekend with Cower and Troy Palomalo. Troy Palomalo, great speech, very grateful, very, very, you know, the thing about these guys, there's no longer a big, dumb football player amongst us. It, it, it used to be the thing where football players were, were these big, dumb guys. You hear these speeches, they're articulate, intelligent, poignant, very, very smart guys, one and all. And it was really impressive to see how smart and how articulate and how the message whether it's thanking people or pointing out how they were doubted like Isaac Bruce did and how it drove them to become the man that they are, the player that they are, and now the Hall of Famer that they are. Pretty cool stuff from the weekend in Canton. And this is a personal favorite. As a guy who grew up in the first greatness of the Dallas Cowboys with Tom Landry, Roger Staubach, Tony Dorsett, all the great players, but the coolest player of that team and of that era was none other than Drew Pearson, the original 88, and I will always contend the best 88. Drew Pearson, an undrafted college receiver. He was a former quarterback. Everyone who's a Minnesota Viking fan just turned off my podcast because of the Hail Mary in 75. It's just a guy who made plays and looked unbelievably cool doing it. And as a little kid, trying to be as cool and as good as Drew Pearson, I was so happy to see him get his Hall of Fame moment. Maybe long overdue, maybe not. You look at the numbers versus what the numbers that are put up now. It was a different game then. But very happy to see a guy I rooted hard for as a little kid get his moment in the sun. Major League Baseball, since the trade deadline, it's been pretty interesting, the teams that made trades and brought in talent, and in many cases have seemed to go up. Teams that maybe didn't make enough moves have seemed to tank. In the American League, the Yankees have been very good. They have won nine out of uh, eight out of ten since the trade deadline, and they've had great production from Anthony Rizzo. Now, Rizzo has going to step away because he also is on the COVID list. A lot of discussion about the COVID list and about players who aren't vaccinated. Are they being selfish? You know, I'm not going to get into that because I think that's something that we spend way too much time on. But this is a team that's been playing great. And oftentimes, when you have injuries, you find things and you find players to replace players. The Yankees having Garrett Cole, Jordan Montgomery go on the COVID list, having Domingo Herman go on the IL for a shoulder issue. Well, they bring up Lucas Gill, G-I-L. And when I saw he was pitching, I'm like, who the hell's Gill? Never heard of the guy. Why not Davey Garcia? 
who's Gill? And then I watched the first game that he threw, and I was like, this kid can throw. This kid can pitch. So far, he's had two starts, second one being yesterday. He's thrown 11 innings pitched in those two starts. Hasn't yet allowed a run. He struck out 14, six hits, couple walks, three walks. He's been lights out. I don't know where they've kept this kid hidden, but certainly this is a young man, based on what I've seen in his first two starts, that should be part of the Yankee rotation going forward. Luis Severino is back throwing after the groin injury that sidelined him as he returns from Tommy John. So that could be a help as well. But the Yankees are certainly trending in the right direction. With the Red Sox cooling off, there's a chance that the Yankees could continue to make up ground. The Red Sox have struggled over the last 10 games, winning only two. So the Yankees have picked up significant games on the Red Sox. The Rays still winning. The Blue Jays, since they've gone to Toronto, and I thought they'd struggle going back to Toronto, they've won 9 of 11 in Toronto. They've been very good. Yesterday, George Springer, big home run that brought them back against the Sox. So the American League East is going to be a dogfight till the end. This is going to be whoever's the healthiest in September will likely win it. I think that the Yankees have positioned themselves to be every bit in this race and make ways. Now, one thing that needs to be seen, Aroldis Chapman has gone on the IL, elbow inflammation. That's never good. You think about this guy, he's throwing 102 miles an hour for a long time in this league. He's been a big, strong, healthy reliever for and, and effective for the most part, as much as Yankee fans don't really appreciate him because they got spoiled with how great Mariano Rivera is, Chapman has been a key to the Yankees' success over the last couple of years. Now, they have Zach Britton, and he's back healthy, and it's a guy who saved 47 games a few years back for the Orioles. He's no stranger to the position, but I think it's going to be interesting to see because it shortens the bullpen. Instead of Britton pitching the eighth, He's pitching the ninth. You need somebody to pitch the eighth. And I think when you have starters missing starts because of injury, like Herman, if and when he comes back, if Severino comes back, those are five to six inning pitchers at best. So the bullpen is going to be taxed a little more. You lose a big piece like Chapman for any length of time, it's going to be tough for the team to overcome. The other side of New York is the other side of the coin, if you will. Because while the Yankees have been very good since the trade deadline, the Mets have brought in Javi Baez in large part to fill the absence of the injured Francisco Lindor. They have uh, not been good. They've lost 9 of 11. 11 games ago, they had a a 3.5 game lead in the National League East. Presently, they're two and a half games back and in third place looking up at two teams. Got a brutal schedule down the stretch. They've got two series each with the Giants and Dodgers. They play the Yankees and Red Sox still. This is a team that cannot score runs. And if you look at why they can't score runs, they've only scored in their last 11 more than three runs three times. Two of them were the wins that they had in those 11 games. Yesterday, 
They went against former Met and a guy that former GM Brody Van Wagenen didn't feel was worth the $20 million a year that the Phillies signed Zach Wheeler to. Wheeler allowed two hits and retired the last 22 batters in a complete game shutout. Asked if it was extra sweet because it was the Mets. Zach Wheeler said, yep. Well, go figure. Whenever somebody doesn't want you, you want to prove to them they made the mistake. It's human nature, and all the great ones do it. Zach Wheeler, every time he goes against the Mets, turns it up a notch, and he's become the player that the Mets thought he could become. Finally healthy, finally confident in his secondary pitches, and, man, is he dominant this year, I think, Right now, the favorite, because of Jacob deGrom's injury situation, he is the favorite to win the Cy Young Award in the National League. Back to the Mets, why they can't hit. Think of these players who are underperforming. Michael Conforto, who defensively has been very good, but a 201 average, only seven home runs and 25 RBIs for your starting right fielder and a guy who at the beginning of the year was thought to be your fourth or fifth hitter in a stacked lineup, OPS of only 670. Dominic Smith had a great short season last year, as did Conforto. This year, 254, 11 home runs, 49 RBIs. He's actually been the best Matt against left-handed pitching, which is strange because he's a left-handed batter, but only a 704 OPS. Jeff McNeil routinely in the past has contended for batting titles. 300 career hitter. This year, 267, and he's up to 267. Battled leg injuries, only six home runs, 739 OPS. McCann comes in, James McCann, as a catcher who's going to change the Mets position-wise there because of his ability to hit, hit as well as handle the staff. He's done a great job handling the staff, throwing out runners. Unfortunately, his 675 OPS and 243 batting average Leave a lot to be desired. I mentioned Lindor. He's up to 228. Does have 11 long balls and 36 home runs, but or 36 RBIs, but is still on the IL and will be for some time. Javi Baez is now injured as well. He came out of yesterday's game with a strained hip flexor. About the only two guys that you can look at that are doing what you would expect, Brandon Nimmo, who's in my opinion, one of the more overrated players. He's a very poor defensive player in center field. He walks a lot, and he doesn't hit for power. He's a good player, not a great player. Pete Alonzo, another good player, 24 home runs, 63 RBIs. He's the only Met with an 800 or higher OPS. And then, of course, there's the closer. Edwin Diaz has the ability to be lights out as a closer. But just before the All-Star break in back-to-back games against Joe's Pirates, he gave up big leads in the ninth, and it set the tone for what's become a second-half slide. He's now got four blown saves on the year and just hasn't been a pitcher who you can put in except for in a save situation. Absolutely can't be used any other time. I don't know why it is, but it is. I mentioned at the top of the show I was going to give the Pagulas credit because I'm not a hater. But after reading more about Evander Kane and what's gone on with him, the best move Terry Pagula has made as owner of the Sabres 
was moving on from Evander Kane. This is a good player. Kane's been in the league for 12 years now. He's made some money. However, his soon-to-be ex-wife has made allegations that he's bet on games that he's played in. There's been a little bit more research into Evander Kane and what has become of Evander Kane and what is going on with him. In 2019, he was sued by a Las Vegas casino for $500,000 in gambling debts. Okay, I understand that gambling is now part of sports in the upfront stage. It's always been part of sports. But now sports teams are partnering with gambling institutions. Heck, the Cardinals, they're putting a sports book in their casino. And if the Pagulas ever do build the stadium in, in Orchard Park, I guarantee there's a sports book that's part of that as well. Kim Pagula's been very active in getting sports betting legalized in New York State. But Evander Kane has taken it to the next level. $500,000 he's sued for by a Vegas casino? That's amazing. He's filed bankruptcy, and he signed a seven-year, $49 million deal. Guy makes $7 million a year, and he's filing for bankruptcy. He's in therapy for his gambling. What's amazing to me is there hasn't been any sort of suspension or the league hasn't acted on this. Look, I don't know if Vander Kane has bet on his team or not, but if you're an active player and you're losing, well, look, he got sued for 500 grand. I guarantee he lost a hell of a lot more than that that he had to get sued because the casino fronted him that. He probably lost over a million to get fronted the 500 grand that he didn't pay back. That's concerning. Where's the league on this? How have they not stepped in and suspended this guy or at least made a point of telling him to stay the hell out of casinos? I don't know how this ends with Evander Kane, but the article I read the other day also cited that his teammates want him gone from San Jose. They have... He has worn out his welcome yet again in another NHL city. So bottom line is this. Hey, props to the Sabres. They did right. They got rid of a guy before all this crap came out. All right. There's a few other things I want to get to today. Yesterday, the video came out. The Colorado Rockies were hosting the Florida Marlins, the Miami Marlins. And Lewis Brinson, an African-American player, was batting for the Marlins. And a video came out of some piece of crap yelling repeatedly the N-word at Lewis Brinson. It came onto the field mics very loudly, very clearly, and very often. I don't know who this scumbag is, and I don't know how anybody else who heard him saying this did not at least punch the guy in the face a couple times. I really don't understand how that's acceptable behavior. And I don't understand how others around allowed it to happen. It's ridiculous in 2021 that a player has to hear that crap while doing their job. I don't know if they'll be able to find this a-hole 
I don't know what they can do to him other than permanently ban him from everything, everywhere. But, man, this guy needs to be exposed, and everybody needs to know what a piece of crap he is. Nationwide, put his face on billboards. Racist. Let everyone know what a piece of dirt this individual is. Horrible. Horrible. And I hope they find out who it is very soon. In golf yesterday, Bryson DeChambeau was in contention down the stretch before another meltdown. Well, at least he didn't blame the equipment that he's paid millions of dollars to use. But he did get another favorable ruling. And look, golf is the gentleman's game. Golf is a game where you call penalties on yourself. You make your own rulings and you do things the right way. I don't play golf for money, but last week when I played, I was out of bounds by about four inches. I didn't hit the ball, although I could have, because I was out of bounds. You play by the rules. It's part of the game. Bryson DeChapeau has repeatedly bent the rules in his favor and gotten rulings in his favor that other players simply would not ask for. He is a cheater in addition to an a-hole. This is a bad young man who's got to figure it out, and no wonder the rest of the tour hates this guy because they all do things one way, and he does them another. The cameras love Bryson because he swings so hard. But guess what? Until he starts doing things the right way in between the ropes, he's not going to be respected by his peers whatsoever. The Olympics are now over, and I wonder... This every Olympiad since forever, there's always been a face of the Olympics. It used to be a big thing after the Olympics, somebody would end up on the Wheaties box, whether it was Bruce Jenner in 76 or Michael Jordan in 84. There was always that person, Mary Lou Retton, was the face of the Olympics way back when. But this year, because in part of tape delay, which no longer works, by the way. Because of Twitter, we know what happens immediately. Because of social media, tape delay no longer works. And it just wasn't a very interesting Olympiad. The face of the Olympics, Simone Biles, bowed out of a couple of events. Who was the face of the Olympics this year? The U.S. won more medals than anyone else. I don't know who the face of the team was. If you were to ask me to pick an Olympic story... I might say the U.S. women's basketball team because they were phenomenal. Sue Bird might be the face of the Olympics. She's won as much as anybody ever. And I'm talking Bill Russell. She has won that much. Maybe she's the face of the Olympics. But other than that, I really don't know. I don't think there's anything that stands out. This was an Olympiad that I watched the least of. This was an Olympiad I cared the least about. And in hindsight, I don't know what I missed because I didn't watch. Really strange, and I wonder if the next Olympiad, NBC tries to find a different way to broadcast so we know what's on, we know where to find it, we know when it's going to be on, and maybe we can watch it live instead of already knowing the result. One of the greatest sporting moments of all time was tape delayed, and that was the 1980 U.S. Olympic team beating the Russians. 
But back then, we didn't have the internet. We didn't all know. Very few people knew when they were watching that that it wasn't live. So I don't know how NBC corrects this, but it's something that needs to be done. Saw a cool thing last night, and maybe I'm just a dork when it comes to this, but I just love when our local guys do well. And last night, the NBA Summer League kicked off, and the Rockets were playing on ESPN. And I got to see Anthony Lamb play for the Rockets. Lamb, one of three locals who are NBA players, is not in a position of the other two. Thomas Bryant coming off an ACL. He's signed by the Wizards. He's going to be on a roster. No doubt he's going to be there. Isaiah Stewart, who was a first-round pick and had a great rookie year, he's going to be on the Pistons. But Anthony Lamb has to impress either his Rockets or another team. Last night went out and did what he did. Played an all-around game, got 22 minutes, was every bit the part of an NBA player. It's just fun for me to see these kids who I've seen so many times as a referee get an opportunity to play against the best in the world. And I root for them openly, and I hope they continue to make our city proud. So good job, Anthony. Keep working, Isaiah, and get healthy, Thomas. You you got a lot of people in the 585 rooting for you all. That's it for this week. Hope you have a great week. We'll talk next Tuesday again, and we'll look forward to another great conversation. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.